if you want nutrition to be an important tool, you have to make sure that the other areas of your production are also up to snuff. So are you maintaining a clean, comfortable environment? Are you sourcing healthy pigs to start? Like that, that goes on to that. What's their pre-weaning environment and what are they coming in with? Am I reducing pathogen load there so they're not bringing it with them into the barn? Uh, are they stressed coming into the barn? It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe and sustainable way. Alonco's Prevacent, a new perspective. Visit prevacentpers.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. Hello, Dr. Brooke Smith. Hi, how are you? Good, good seeing you. Yeah, good to see you too. Appreciate the time. Yeah, so you, uh, you mentioned that uh, early early COVID, your l late pregnancy, right? Yeah. So how, how old is the baby now? <laughs> he is five months old as of last week. Wow. Yeah, wow. so we're... <laughs> he's definitely been the hardest part about going back to vet school. <laughs> But, Imagine that. Um, super boring. You have a, a relatively new little one as well. Yeah, six months. We oh, tried, yeah. tried to give some food to him today. He didn't like much. <laughs> no. Yeah, we've introduced a little bit of food to ours. Um, he just likes to eat, so he was pretty on board. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So, yeah, um, if you can share with the audience a little bit about your background, for those that don't know you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, hi, I'm Dr. <laughs> Brooke Smith. Um, I'm originally from Michigan. Both my husband and I grew up there. Uh, so I went to Michigan State for my undergrad education. Um, I specialized in dairy management there um, from Michigan State. I took a year off, but then started veterinary school at Illinois in 2014. So I am part of a dual DVM PhD program that the university supports called the Veterinary Medical Scholars Program. And what that does is that allows veterinary students to receive support in pursuing secondary graduate degrees in a area of animal health of their interest. So for me, that was animal science and um, in the Nutrition for Optimizing Animal Health Laboratory under Ryan Dilger, mm -hmm. I got my PhD in swine nutrition. Uh, and my research focus was in broad sense, how can a nutritional intervention impact the response of pigs to a disease. Uh, specifically, I looked at how soy bioactives mitigate the immune response to PERS. Uh, and I just finished that degree in March, um, defended my PhD via Zoom. <laughs> What a time. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, 
you know, took the summer off to try to figure out this whole new mom thing. Um, and then this fall, I just rejoined SETMED here at University of Illinois for my third year. Uh, so about a quarter of the way through that. So trucking nice. along. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So a few years left. Uh, yeah. Two years, two years total. So we're getting there. The light at the end of the tunnel is a little brighter. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, when you look at overall swine nutrition by health, Mm-hmm. Of course, the soy side was your your focus. Did you also look a little bit in general as well? So do you have any insights, I guess, what would be the first few things that come to mind when you think in that arena? Um, so to clarify your question, you're just asking like what about nutrition has like the strongest driving force in health? Yeah, in general, yeah. Where, okay. Where, exactly, because it's one area that I, I like as well, that, that interaction, but I want to know your thoughts there. Sure. Um, so like you said, I looked at a pretty particular product, right? I'm looking at one compound within the soybean as a general. Um, but I think when looking at nutrition as a tool to influence health, at the very base, nutrition provides a foundation. So if you think about you're going to build a house, right. how large and how tall you can build that house depends on the strength and, of that foundation. So nutrition, if it's good, high quality feed, using ingredients that can help promote those antioxidant, anti-inflammatory pathways, um, and providing all of the necessary nutrients at levels that are supportive of highly productive animals, then you can build that house taller and wider and just build a better structure. But if you skip or you don't put in the efforts into nutrition, into that foundation, you're going to limit your production down the line. And it may not be obvious that your problem is a nutrition problem. Um, It could be you have higher incidence of health or morbidity, mortality issues. Um, You could have fertility issues. And just taking a closer look at what you're feeding those pigs could have pretty big impacts on what might seem like unrelated health issues. So for me, that's what nutrition is. And um, really, we're in a really cool time for nutrition, right? There's all of these different feed additives, um, mm-hmm. especially with the, this, I guess, the motivating factor of being we have to reduce in feed antibiotic use. Right. So we are discovering new technologies and new ingredients that we can incorporate in these swine diets. But at the end of the day, still thinking we have to feed an animal. So reinvesting in those kind of what I would say is a whole food source. So looking at our proteins and how can we improve those plants to provide what we'd like? Um, Because if we just keep adding new and new ingredients, we don't know how all these feed additives interact together. But if we can go back to the base diet Mm -hmm. and understand how can we control those ingredients, we might get a little bit more bang for our buck versus just keep adding the supplements like you see in human health today. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So on the soy side, um, what's the, well, yeah, it would be good to dive into that arena, right? I know Dr. Dean Boyd has done a series on the soy as well. I don't know if you were part of that, that one. or Yeah. He, um, Dean Boyd's uh, finding on his study that was evaluating soybean sourced lysine versus crystal amino acid source lysine on the requirements in pigs. That was really the, I guess, the spark that stimulated my line of research in Ryan Dilger's lab, um, right? And so that the findings of that study were pigs that received soybean meal 
um, had better average daily gain, um, and then better carcass yield parameters at market uh, when faced with a naturally occurring PERS infection. Mm-hmm. So to us, you have to ask, okay, was that just because we have more amino acids in the diet, or is this because of some other component in this whole protein source that we're not taking into account? Um, between those two questions, uh, Ryan Dilger's lab chose to answer the isoflavone question. Um, and that's what led down my research there. So yeah, he, uh, <laughs> I credit him a lot to <laughs> my, my research because without that finding, we may have not even considered isoflavones to reinvestigate. So. Super cool. So then on your studies, did you look mostly at isoflavones or other compounds? But, but also if you can just explain to folks uh, what is uh, isoflavones yeah. as well. What are isoflavones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sure. So we take apart the soybean. Right, we, and let, actually let's not even look at the whole bean, let's just look at soybean meal, right? Mm-hmm. So all the oil has been extracted from that. You have your defatted soybean, so it's used as a protein source. So obviously it's gonna provide amino acids in the diet. However, what's left in that fraction as well are what we consider bioactive compounds, which are just compounds that interact with cell signaling pathways in the animal. And the two that we really think about in, in soybean is isoflavones and staponins. Uh, and we didn't really focus on staponins um, as far as their biological activity. Uh, we focus mainly on isoflavones. So isoflavones are these flavonoid compounds in the soybean that can confer, have been found to confer anti-inflammatory and antiviral properties, both in vitro and in vivo. Um, so for that reason, it's an interesting compound to consider when we're thinking, how can we make our feed so that we can better mitigate infections? So if I'm already feeding a compound that is anti-inflammatory or antioxidative, can I potentially reduce that pathogen inflammatory stress in that animal, um, either by making them just not as susceptible to disease, but also once they get it, can they get over it faster? Um, so that's why we were interested in isoflavones. This episode's sponsor highlight is about AB Vista, an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a Stimbiotic, targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. Very cool. And then what was your biggest finding there? <laughs> um, I would guess uh, looking back at all of the projects that I did, because I, at the beginning of my program, performed what I would say is more of an acute timeline study where we said isoflavone devoid and isoflavone supplemented diets mm-hmm. to pigs that were infected with PERS uh, over a two week period. And um, in that study, what we found was that the pigs that received isoflavones, um, while they didn't have any growth performance benefits over that two week period, um, a lot of their inflammatory markers 
indicated that they might be having a less severe reaction to disease. Um, some of their T cell populations, which are a big driving component of that adaptive immune response, um, were signifying that they were having a more robust uh, reaction to the virus. So that indicated to us, well, maybe these isoflavones are promoting clearance, which is such an issue with PERS, right? So pigs that are infected with PERS can be uh, positive and shedding virus for months. Because of that, anything that can make that immune response more robust is of interest. So we took uh, the same challenge protocol, but then extended it from just that first two weeks post-infection all the way to market. So we followed these pigs out in a much longer trajectory to see what the effect of isoflavones would have. And um, I would say our biggest finding uh, was one that we hadn't originally looked at um, to kind of hang our hats on was mortality. Mm -hmm. So in this study, it was relatively small. If you think about a swine study, it was 96 pigs total. Uh, but what we found were pigs that received isoflavones had 50% less mortality over the entire production timeline than the pigs that did not receive isoflavones. Um, and this was after a particularly rough infection period. So mm -hmm. the strain of PERS that we use is called NADC20. Uh, it's a field-derived strain maintained by Dr. Federico Zuckerman here at U of I. It's extremely virulent. It's a, it's a rough strain of PERS. And what ended up happening was our barn got hit with a particularly bad secondary infection with strep. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we had higher mortality than we anticipated just for disease study in general. So mm -hmm. we're like, why are we losing all of these pigs? Um, and we started to take a closer look at that mortality data, which is something we always record but don't necessarily report, mm -hmm. was, wait a minute, 50% less pigs died if they received isoflavones than the pigs that mm -hmm. didn't. And what we saw when we look at growth performance is their performance wasn't that much different. The isoflavone pigs did finish a little bit lighter, mm -hmm. but none of their carcass composition was changed. Um, as far as like the cutability and, um, of the individual primal cuts and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, wow. that was definitely our biggest finding and it was a surprise to us at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, and, and I'm assuming you were able to find that statistical difference there or, or not on the, on the mortality. Right. So that was one thing we didn't do a statistical analysis on the mortality because we understood mm -hmm. our, our animal numbers weren't high enough oh, yeah. to do that. And that's a, that, that was a bummer, obviously, um, but it, that's a kind of an overall limitation when we think about studying mortality in pigs on, pigs on study is in order to say this factor reduces mortality in pigs, you need a lot of pigs. Yeah. And something like a controlled disease study, um, one, we just, we didn't have the resources and facilities to do that kind of study. And I don't know what kind of magnitude of facilities and resources you'd need to do that. Right. Because you do expect to lose a certain number of pigs in a disease study. Um, and also the reproducibility of disease studies is hard. Uh, mm -hmm. Disease research in general is really messy because there's so many factors that can influence how a disease plays out in a barn. I mean, just right. look at in central Illinois, the barn environment during peak July is very different than peak February. You're looking at over 80 degrees in difference of ambient temp, 
Um, so the stress on those pigs are very different. Um, and then just individual responses. So one pig's immune response to PERS can be vastly different than one of their pen mates. And that's gonna change how susceptible they are to secondary infections. And it's gonna impact their overall productivity. And it's very hard to repeat that uh, in subsequent cohorts where maybe I can't get thousands of pigs in a single cohort, but if I tried to repeat it, maybe I could get the numbers to look at mortality, but me to create the same infection twice is really hard, uh, especially when you consider all those external factors that would drive it. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely tough, right? One thing I've been trying to also, you mentioned that, right? We record mortality. A lot of times we don't report it. And that's very common too in some of these smaller mm -hmm. nutrition studies, just in general. Um, I've been trying to uh, convince people that they need to report anyways, mm -hmm. e even though if, uh, you know, even if the p-value is going to be like 0 0.99, yeah. be because again, uh, someone later can come and do, do some larger meta-analysis, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you there. And I think that that's... Um, I guess in the last couple of years, me attending conferences and listening um, and getting the opportunity, right? I'm a veterinary student. So I would attend the American Association of Swine Veterinary Annual Conference. Mm -hmm. And then within the same week or a week later, turn around and attend the Midwest yes. Animal Science. Yeah. The narratives between those are the same, which is um, when you're looking, we like to look at productivity as efficiency of growth. How heavy can we get them? How fast can they get there? Uh, but at the end of the day, and I see this kind of tongue in cheek, a dead pig doesn't perform at all. Mm -hmm. So if yeah. we're not looking at and not reporting, here are the practices as we've done. And then this was our mortality. If we're not sharing those numbers. We're going to limit ourselves as an industry as far as the type of progress we can make. Because at the end of the day, if your pigs aren't making it to market, they're not making it to their their end destination of being a sellable product. Uh, so I think as we kind of continue to grow as an industry, I hope that we do see a change with how we're reporting our data um, and sharing more of that mortality data, maybe capturing a bigger picture of where are the holes in our production strategies that are going to help make more pigs get all the way to the truck. Right. Now, uh, I remember this morning you had a call on the, on the nutrition program uh, I have. And, and we were talking about decision-making nutrition and we talked about exactly what you said, which is growth in early life. So let's call it, especially early nursery or the first few weeks. Mm -hmm. Growth is not nearly impor as important as survivability. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy and it's overlooked. I truly believe because again, 90% of the studies we don't report uh, mortality. It's like, mm -hmm. come on, you know. Wow. The other one is pre-winning mortality, which, you know, 12, 13% or more in pre-winning yeah. mortality. That's uh, just huge. Yeah. It's, a, it's a huge area of loss. And then I think too, if you look at barns that are experiencing a high level of pre-winning mortality, we could make some assumptions that maybe those pigs aren't coming in. The ones that do make it may not be coming in with the best foundation, which is then going to snowball and potentially negatively impact their post-weaning performance during that really tough time of transition um, where they might be more susceptible to disease 
and then subsequently mortality. So it'd be interesting even just to see, you know, when we have farms that are sourcing pigs to growing units that have higher pre-weaning mortality, how does that translate to their performance once they get in the barn? You know, did they see impacts there? Right. Very cool. Let me ask you on, uh, on the immune function that you've done a lot of work with, uh, mm-hmm. what do you think is the biggest misconception on that arena for sometimes people that are not very familiar with the topic? The immune system does and does not act predictably, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know the series of events that happens in immune response. We know the recognition of a pathogen innate response and then it changes to adaptive for final clearance. But what I think is a big misconception is what is the number of factors that can influence how the immune system goes from point A to point B. Um, And that can change within individual pathogen, Mm -hmm. pathogen strains of the same pathogen. Um, And also just looking at other external factors, like I said, like environment, individual response, presence of secondary infections. so I think that that, you know, when you read a, a manuscript or an article about, oh, we were able to modulate uh, the antibody response to this virus, it's like, that's very cool. What's the reproducibility of that? It's totally going to depend on your system um, and the health status of that system, because the more stressed your animals are and the more external factors that you don't have a good control over, you can expect that immune response to be less predictable in your animals. Um, And those benefits that are seen in a highly controlled disease study may not be transferable to an actual barn. Very good. Do you, um, we had this conversation, uh, I had a conversation with uh, another person today about this topic. I want to know your thoughts on when you talk about immunity and uh, nutrition, you know, there's a lot of studies showing, yeah, you know, uh, immune system does take some nutrients, no doubt about mm-hmm. it. You know, take some amino acids, it might change the amino acid profile of the requirement, mm-hmm. which is true. I am of the bias that that's when it comes to reality and production, it's tough to, to, to implement anything on top of that knowledge. But I wanted to know your thoughts. Like if you have a, a production flow that is sick, what would you do, right? Um, maybe something related to soybean meal or not, but I wanted to know your practical advice for, for folks. I think using nutrition as a health tool is a little tricky uh, because one thing that sick pigs do not like to do is eat. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to put an intervention in your diet, you have to do it understanding that they're probably going to consume less than what you think they will when they're actively sick. So if you want nutrition to be an important tool, you have to make sure that the other areas of your production are also up to snuff. So are you maintaining a clean, comfortable environment? Are you sourcing healthy pigs to start? Like that, that goes on to that. What's their pre-weaning environment and what are they coming in with? Am I reducing pathogen load there so they're not bringing it with them into the barn? Uh, are they stressed coming into the barn? Um, And then when you're thinking about what can I feed, um, I'm a little bit of a proponent. And again, I'm, 
I'm still very wet behind the ears as far as a nutrition professional. Uh, so I guess take this with a grain of salt. When we think about feeding ingredients that can benefit health, I think the closer it is to the, the natural ingredient and it's presented in the same composition as the natural plant, it's going to be better. Um, I think because it's relying more on natural metabolism. So if you think about, I can, I can absolutely meet the animal amino acid requirements by just putting in crystalline amino acids into a diet. They will grow. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see is that they don't necessarily always grow as efficiently. And I think that's because digestion at the level of the gut relies on food matrix for recognition of this is that type of nutrient. I'm going to release these enzymes. I'm going to um, facilitate efficient uptake and metabolism. So when you're looking at a sick pig, let's feed sources that have predictable digestive composition, rely on those uh, innate metabolic pathways and um, utilize feed additives or value-added feed ingredients when it seems like they will benefit you the most. Don't take a very sick barn and give it a feed additive and expect it to work to its max potential because it won't, because those pigs aren't going to be eating enough of it. Um, There's already disturbances to their metabolism that might prevent them from utilizing that feed ingredient. So when you're looking at a really sick barn, let's go back to basics. Let's Mm -hmm. feed these whole feed ingredients that can provide additional benefits to like something like a soybean and soybean meal. We know there's isoflavones. There's some evidence that that might be supportive of health. Let's look at our soybean meal component of our diet and make sure we're sourcing quality soybean meal. Um, And then once our health is a little bit more stabilized, then let's look at those other value added feed ingredients that might prevent downstream issues in health. But Nutrition, I don't think it's ever going to come in and say, I have a, a virus in my barn. I'm going to give them this feed ingredient and they're going to get better. It just doesn't work like that. Right, right. Um, have you guys discussed about um, levels? Like what's, I mean, minimum, either minimum amount of soybean meal in a given diet or as a percentage of the totalizing requirement? I don't know anything like that. On my side and what I researched, uh, we didn't. So I would say all the isoflavone research I've done has been with this understanding of a certain percentage of the diet in a normal pig's diet is soybean meal. And I think the percentage of that we used for our isoflavone calculations and supplements was 20% soybean meal. Obviously, that's an average across all production phases. You wouldn't expect 20% soybean meal in a newly weaned pig diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't expect it in your late finishing either. Right. Um, but looking at the, the average across. And I think it is tricky because, right, we credit soybeans as a source of gastrointestinal stress in newly weaned pigs because they're going from their highly palatable milk diet to a less palatable plant-based diet. And soybeans, they do have um, anti-nutritional factors that make digestion hard in young animals. So I think there's motivation there to, well, maybe we need to reduce it in those animals' diets. But when we also think about, I have to feed sick pigs, the other components of soybean meal that are potentially helpful, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to cut that out of the diet 
and maybe look at what else can we feed to kind of bridge the gap and help them transition onto those diets faster. Um, but as far as total soybean meal, I don't know that I have a good speculation on what's, what's ideal. Um, I think there's a lot of factors that can influence what is best. And it may not be a blanket either for the whole industry. This is what is best practice. It could just be within an individual system. Um, and we might get to a point where we can give a good range of this is what we think is ideal, um, but it's still going to come down to even individual pig flows and individual systems that this is the amount of protein my barn can handle and then managing them appropriately. Right. By feed meal or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because if you go back um, a few decades now, there was a study from K-State looking at you know, should you give, um, what if you didn't give any soybean meal in that first diet? Because as you said, they don't uh, nutritional factors, but it turns out that it's better off just give a, you have to give some and um, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, they will, they will have to suffer among, not suffer, you know, quote unquote, but they'll have to go through that transition process anyway so yeah why would you delay it <laughs> right. there and i think i think where the the delaying it comes from is we know that weaning is stressful we know that moving is stressful mixing is stressful so i think the thought process there is okay here's all of these other stressors that these pigs are experiencing maybe if we try to remove this one that we know contributes we can improve their transition. But like you said, they have to go through that stress eventually. And I think you can potentially prolong that period of stress if you try to delay that diet transition, right? Because in that first week, first we've kind of gotten our pecking order sorted. So our stress levels from mixing and transport are decreased. We've started to eat. So we're already transitioning out of that weaning stress. But now I'm going to add a diet stress. You're just coming down we're going to give you another stressor and that could have downstream effects on how those animals perform. So I would agree just um, include it in the initial transition because um, it has to happen anyway. Very good. And you worked uh, with Dr. Jim Lowe as well, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, I wasn't originally a pig person. Actually, I'm not originally an ag person. <laughs> um, I, I know you've discussed it in this podcast before talking about how we have all these new non-agriculture people. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm one of those people. So at Michigan state, I actually specialized in dairy cattle um, and did research there under Dr. Paul cousins uh, on Yoni's disease. And mm -hmm. that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to stay in dairy and ruminant health. Um, once I got to vet school and I actually took a research job in Dr. Jim Lowe's lab mm -hmm. and did some environmental PERS management research, um, and also some rotaviral research. And I kind of saw all the open doors and opportunities in swine health. And that kind of caused me to shift gears and um, pursue swine medicine as my kind of end career goal. Uh, so yeah, I, ha I do have to credit him a little bit <laughs> on picking cool. the swine path. Yeah, that's cool. Wow. Yeah. Any, any lessons that, 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 um, marked your memory there from from from, from his experience um i would so dr Lowe is also one of my committee members so he's kind of had um a hand in how my disease 
my disease research got wrapped up. And I think not necessarily like a specific story of this taught me working with um, Jim Lowe, but I think in general is I think research is great and you get so invested in it and he kind of helps you <laughs> keep grounded in, mm-hmm. okay, but does it work? You know, so here I have this nutritional intervention and it does, you know, X, Y, Z. And that's really interesting from a research perspective and even just from a biology perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, your goal is to use it in production. So if it's not working or it's not doing what you think it will do, how applicable is that at the end of the day? And um, I think that was a really important factor for me. Um, one being new to the industry, um, kind of kept me honest and, um, temper my own expectations, but I also think it made the design and the overall outcome of my projects a lot more valuable. Um, when you think about applicability of research, um, especially on the nutrition side. So, um, I, I kind of liked that grounding, um, that he provided in that sense. Very cool. And you were also mentioning about the, you know, not having a background in agriculture. And I'm in a similar position. When I was growing up, I was um, in a small, we had a small ranch there in Brazil, very small, like one pig, one horse, a bunch of <laughs> chicken and that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, yeah, and then went to vet school and, and internship and those things. So that that was how I got addicted to pig production. Right? <laughs> What is, uh, you mentioned you had a story about the Dairy Challenge team that you participated. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that goes in the line of, in general, it's really easy for young scientists to have imposter syndrome, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I'm not qualified to be here. I don't know enough mm-hmm. um, to be valuable. And um, that was definitely magnified with, with me in my undergrad education where I didn't have an agriculture background. I did grow up in a rural community, but I grew up with companion animals, grew up riding horses. So mm-hmm. I didn't have that animal ag background. Mm-hmm. And I kind of jumped in head first into dairy. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I felt always like I was on a steep learning curve and I just didn't have the, the background um, that I felt to be up to snuff on um contributing to things like Dairy Challenge, but Dr. Miriam Weber-Nielsen, who is an associate professor there, and she teaches all of the uh, dairy management courses. Uh, During my senior year, she asked, would I be interested in being one of the four team members for the Dairy Challenge team? And I was like, you know, thank you, but I don't, I don't know what I would offer to the team. You know, everything that I know about dairy, I've learned here, Mm -hmm. um, not on a farm. And she's like, no, that's great. She's like having that outward perspective of, you know, you right now as a student know what are best practices. You don't come in with any kind of preconceived notions or habits or, well, my farm does this. So I think that's the most correct. Uh, She said, because I don't have that, I approach problems differently that can be beneficial um, in a, you know, the dairy Um, dairy challenge scenario, which is we're going to go into a farm, we're going to do a full assessment, and we're going to identify here are areas that we think you could improve. Mm -hmm. And here are some suggestions on how to improve them. And she was saying that my perspective 
not having any reference to personal experience is beneficial because I can look at the problem differently than somebody who's been producing cattle their whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, and I've really carried that message with me. um, And I'm very quick to share that with um, new students, Mm -hmm. Uh, even within the research realm, like, well, I really have never worked with pigs or don't really never worked with chickens because we um, also did poultry research in Ryan Dilger's lab. And it's like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That means you're more receptive to learning. Um, and also makes it less likely that you're going to do something or promote a certain management decision just because that's what you've always done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it makes you look more critically at, well, what can I do to make this practice the best um, versus how can I make this thing that I've always done fit? No, I think that's huge. I mean, you think today, for example, you know, I think in general in the, in the, in the globe, probably the brightest minds today, they go to working softer and finances probably, mm-hmm. you know, So then how, are, how is our industry going to be able to steal some of those people? You know what I mean? Like just right. we have to do a much better job, I think, in attracting people, you know. Well, and, you have to make the field inviting. Um, yeah. And I think that, and I, and I don't have a suggestion on how to make it more inviting. Um, but I think, yeah, as if we're going to get people my age group and younger to want to make an investment in animal agriculture, um, how do we make them feel invited and it, you know, how do we show our excitement in incorporating their viewpoints and their particular set of skills and helping the industry maintain and continue to grow? Because I mean, it's obvious that the animal ag industry is having to change, um, because our consumers are changing mm-hmm. and our environment is changing and how can we continue to produce animal protein and grow? And I think a lot of that is we are going to have to broaden the range of our net in capturing talent um, to people that can bring unique perspectives uh, beyond that of, I grew up in an agriculture community because I think that there's their skills and perspectives that are going to help change the industry for the better and make it more adaptable and better able to accommodate the changes that are happening. Right. And just have a flow of a uh, future professional, exactly. right? Right. It's like at the end of the day, we still need people to run the barn. We still need people to uh, formulate the diets and breed the pigs. And uh, we have to, we have to look at the future for that. So that it starts now with investing in people and attracting people to join the industry. Right. So talking about people, um, you mentioned before about empathy, right? And having uh, empathy. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your insights on that arena? Um, so I, I put that out there. Um, and I know that this kind of gets addressed in, in your three questions at the end. Um, but I think one of the biggest factors in what makes successful producers and successful leaders specifically um, is empathy. And um, in, the, in the context of animal ag, that's twofold. One, just being empathetic to your team 
um, whether you are a site manager or you oversee the production at multiple units, if you can understand what drives individual people on your team and not only understand what motivates them, what drives them, but understand why it would motivate them. Mm-hmm. Um, this makes you just a much stronger leader. It allows you to cater your leadership um, to those values. It allows them to feel more valued. Um, and in turn, they're going to want to invest higher quality work into their job um, because they feel like they're being heard, they're being understood, and they're making an impact. Um, and all of that's driven by just being empathetic and understanding the feelings of others. Um, and then on another vein, it's at the end of the day, we work with animals. Um, while these pigs have an end goal of becoming a saleable product, they have to get there first. And that means that we are asking an ultimate sacrifice of an animal that's growing under our care. So what can I do as a producer to understand the needs of those animals? How can I promote a comfortable environment uh, that's healthy so that I can reduce the stress on those animals so that they may produce at the highest level that they can to become the highest quality product that they can. Um, And that's driven by empathy as well. If you have an investment emotionally um, to the welfare of your animals, I think that makes you a predator producer. It makes you uh, more tuned in to the decisions that you're making because there might be a less empathetic option that you could make as far as management of those animals that could benefit you right now. It's not going to benefit you in the long-term, in the long-term productivity of those animals. Right. I heard a quote from uh, Sawyer Whistler a few weeks ago. Uh, he gave a talk at the, the Swine Talks and he said, have your farm or take care of your farm and your animals as someone was going to visit that farm every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it goes along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. It's you, uh, my husband, actually, I was talking to him about getting ready for this podcast and he said, yeah, you never want to be the farm that gets caught on video and mm. put out on the internet. And that's absolutely true. And it's not to say that like being exploited on the internet should definitely not be your motivator to be a good animal steward, but what it does drive home the fact that animals, good animal stewardship happens every day. Right. So create the environment that you said, like anybody could walk on the farm and you'd be proud of the environment that you've created. Um, and if it's not that way, look critically at what you're doing and how can you make that better? It is time to our famous three. Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing, trace mineral nutrition. As the most research proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Very good. And uh, as we start wrapping up here, Dr. Smith, um, what is a, the pig-related book that, that you like the most? Um. Well, so on, right as a veterinary student and hope, hope to be one day swine, but I feel inclined to say the diseases of swine or the swine disease manual. Mm-hmm. Um, 
obviously those are excellent resources uh, for the purpose that they fulfill. Um, as a student, um, I will say I got a lot of help from the Merck veterinary manuals online. I think, um, I think as vet students, we know they exist mm -hmm. um, and we, we search them a lot. Um, but I think as a PhD student um, that's using a disease component in their research, it was just a really great quick reference that I can type in Strepsuis mm -hmm. and get a very easy to read, easy to break down quick page on symptoms, clinical signs, diagnostics, prog prognostic indicators. And um, so I think that's a really a cool resource. If you're not using it as a student, go ahead and use it. <laughs> yeah, super good, super cool. How about any book or resource that is not related to pigs? Not related to pigs. Um, and, and actually not related to agriculture. Anything, yeah. yeah. Um, I will admit, I'm not much of a recreational reader. I think that comes <laughs> that comes with being in school for a really long time. <laughs> you, uh, you're already doing enough reading. You don't want to read anymore. Um, so I will go back to what I think is probably the book I've read the most, childhood favorite, which is Black Beauty. I was the, I was the quintessential horse girl growing up, nice. but um, I still think it has a, a really good message and it's a really good book. Um, that I, I have a copy up on my, my mantle in my office. <laughs> nice. um, so yeah, I'll say that one, Black Beauty. That's cool. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it's a classic. <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it's a children's book, but it's, uh, it's good. That's cool. Good. And then uh, lastly, you know, you mentioned about empathy. Anything else you want to add when it comes um, to, to being successful? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I know that having listened to your podcast that people have touched on this one a lot. Uh, but I think it's as a producer is maintaining some level of plasticity or ability to adapt. Um, I think as humans, we kind of like to get into our patterns. We, we know that this practice works. It's worked really well for me. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and I think consistency can contribute to success. But there's a point where you have to adapt. You have to incorporate new practices and change your game plan. Uh, and producers that do that willingly. And that goes so much further than let's just try this new ingredient. Let's try this new drug. Uh, that goes into let's try this entire new management practice. Let's hire these new people that don't have background. Um, and understanding the investment that these changes can have and being open-minded to incorporating them is just going to make your productivity so much greater um, because you're able to uh, adapt and respond to changes in the industry and changes within your system. I love it. Awesome. Dr. Smith, thanks so much for this uh, insight yeah. and, and, and knowledge there. I love to learn from the expert, direct from the source when it comes to soybean and those things. So, well, thank you. I know uh, this is uh, this is my first opportunity being mm -hmm. asked to talk as Dr. Smith, so I was definitely excited yeah. to participate. Awesome, thank you, and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, thank you. Imagine if, with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. 
Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.